We're talking about courage. Could be defined in several ways. One of the definitions is courage is the strength to venture, to persevere, and to withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. So we, we venture out. Uh, that's courage. Take a step, go forward, but then to, to persevere when the going gets tough, and then to withstand all kinds of difficulties and obstacles, a willingness to face pain, to face danger, face uncertainty. Another word is valor or bravery. And we know in Scripture, particularly from the story of Joshua, that courage was a premium. I want to summarize several verses there, not read every part of it, but just the part that applies to our teaching today. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Joshua is told, Be strong and courageous. Then a little bit later, Only be strong and very courageous, that you may achieve success. And then a few verses later, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified nor dismayed, uh, for the Lord your God is with you. And so uh, there was the awareness that for Joshua, there would be many opportunities to be dismayed, to be terrified, to be frightened. But he's reminded, God's presence is with you. You know, the word encourage means to put courage into it. Today, and this is one of the ministries of the Apostle Paul that he mentions especially, and I want to be in that ministry of encouraging. If you feel like courage has gone from you, I want to help put courage into you today by the Holy Spirit and by the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, the word discourage, we were to define that, it could be to be drained of courage. It's like a, a parasite is, is sitting there hanging on to your body, just draining the strength. Uh, that's how discouragement works. The Bible talks about it's like you are fainting. It's like you are in distress. So let's get into it. A discouragement comes to every person, regardless of your age, your profession, your gender. It comes to individuals. It comes to you as an individual. It comes to entire groups of people. Nations can become uh, discouraged. It, we, I, I say it's the battle of life. You've heard me from time to time quote the poem, Great it is to dream the dream when standing in youth by the starry stream, but greater still to fight life through and then to say the dream is true. Beautiful poem. You picture a young person standing there and, and the stars and the moon is reflecting in that stream and they are thinking of all the great things they're going to do. And that's great. A vision is great. And it's wonderful. But, but as the poet said, it's even greater to go through life step by step and discouragement comes. And as you fight your way through with the power of God's Spirit helping you, then at the end of life, you say, my dream was true. And, and the big enemy on that journey is discouragement. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 5, it says, The soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Their soul was discouraged. 
the soul. That, that's, that's where discouragement happens. Your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. Uh, that, that's the battle arena. And it says they were discouraged on the way. You're on the way to your destiny. And, 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 and on the way there, things happened. Um, obstacle comes in your way. People say things to you. You hear things. But sometimes you imagine things. And on the way to the destiny, because you're going somewhere, and, and it's a good destiny, discouragement comes. And, and then discouraged people, as we found here, uh, they, they speak negatively. They exaggerate. You know, problems become bigger than they really are. If I was to read the whole story there in, first, in, in Numbers, you know, at one point the people of Israel say to Moses, well, we have no food. There is no bread. There is no food. And in the next breath they say, we don't like this bread. You see, so, so when they said there is no food, they were actually exaggerating or right out lying. They're just making it up. Uh, they call their bread is worthless. You see, so when discouragement is on, people have a hard time to keep that hole under your nose shut, you know. You, you just go on and say things. And so I want to encourage you today, by the help of the Lord, see things, not through the lens of discouragement, but as those things really are. Because when discouragement hits you, nothing looks right. Everything that we look at, our things around us, we see through that lens of discouragement. People get mad at God. Even God doesn't look good. They get mad at friends. They get mad at the church. They get mad at everything. But, but the real problem is this, is this veil of discouragement. You know, Jesus Christ had every opportunity to be discouraged. His disciples, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they... They fell asleep. His, earlier on, his own brothers, sisters, uh, they, they were not with him. The religious leaders were constantly harassing Jesus. And so if anybody had a reason to be discouraged, it was Jesus. And yet it says he set his face like flint to pursue his purpose. He, he resisted until blood. Uh, there, there's a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah that addresses this issue of discouragement. Isaiah 42, it says about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged. I said, no, notice that, no, not be discouraged. What does it say about Jesus? First of all, Jesus works with discouraging situations. If you look in the scripture, Jesus was constantly encountering discouraging situations. What is called here a, a, a smoking flax or a broken reed. In other words, a reed has a purpose. You can make something out of reed. You could weave a hat or even make a musical instrument. But once it's broken, it seems worthless. Jesus was dealing with situations that really was, were discouraging. These were people who everything had gone wrong for them. But then what he does, he restores. He doesn't give up on them. He, he brings justice, which means he makes things right. He makes things, situations good for those people. And then 
it finishes the prophecy by saying, and he refuses to be discouraged. So if anybody, we are the followers of Jesus. If anybody could have been discouraged, it was Jesus. Now I want to give you three little things here for you to consider today. First of all, encourage yourself. Now, don't wait for your pastor. Don't wait for your church. Don't wait for, encourage yourself. Uh, you have the ability to do that. You know, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a story told about David. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the last verse of it in a moment. But David at that time, uh, he was centered around a city called Ziglag. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, he gets to Ziglag and the city is burned. And all the wives and kids of the soldiers and David and David's household, they've been taken captive. I mean, everything you have is burning. And, and that which was dearest to them, uh, captive, gone. And it says that David and the people wept until they had no more power to weep. They cried until they say, our, well, we don't have any more liquid, no more tears. And then it says that David was greatly distressed because at that point where they all had cried, then the people changed their tune and they wanted to stone David. He's got it coming at him from every side. It says the soul of the people was deeply grieved. So you see how David has it coming? Everything he owns is gone, burned. That which is dearest to him, taken away, captive. And then the people who he trusted in, the ones he thought were on the same side with him, they want to kill him. So what does David do? It says, and here comes, here, here comes, 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. I've quoted the first five verses, but in verse 6 it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Well, what did he do? He strengthened himself. There was nobody else to strengthen him. There was nobody to encourage him. So he encouraged himself in the Lord. And we get a little insight into what David might have been doing and how he encouraged himself in Psalm 42, 5, where it says, David is quoted here talking to himself, to his soul. He's talking, remember your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. He's talking to his emotions. Maybe you should talk to your emotions. Talk to your mind. Talk to your logic. He says, why are you in despair, my soul? Why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence. So he's saying, come on, soul. You ought to do that. Say, come on, emotions. You're getting carried away. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that Christ lives in you? Talk to yourself. And then he says, wait on God. Now that word wait, you know, we think like, oh, I'm waiting, meaning a passive doing nothing. But that word wait in the Hebrew is more akin to our word attend or a waitress or a waiter in a restaurant. You know, when a waiter in a restaurant, they don't stand and just wait in the corner. Sometimes they come every minute. Everything all right? How's your food? Can I get you this? Can I get you that? You feel like I'm in the middle of a conversation. You know, please, they are waiting on you. And see, waiting on the Lord is not this passive folding of our arms and doing nothing. It's paying attention to the Lord. 
And, and, and then David says here, I will yet praise him for the help of his presence. His presence. God's presence never leaves you. I, I want to say something, especially to my charismatic Christian friends. I think the very phrase, God's presence, has been hijacked. We have somehow gotten around to God's presence being a moment in a worship service when everybody has their hands raised and some are maybe have tears coming down their face and others are just smiling and, 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 and we have emotions. The music is good. The lighting is good. The sound, the mixing is right. And we, ooh, I feel something. You know, that's beautiful. You can feel God's presence like that. But we almost hijack that to be the presence of God. Let me give you a little uh, bit of a history of, of you know, I'm old enough. I, I can remember when the praise and worship that we enjoy today, and we enjoy it when it started. You know, before that, Christians, and I mean Pentecostal, charismatic Christians, they were just singing out of the hymn book. They were singing out of it. They didn't call it hymn book, called songbook. But then something came called the charismatic movement and the Jesus movement. And it was just very simple. People fell in love with Jesus. And somebody played a guitar. They had been playing whatever songs they were playing at that time, they say late 60s or whenever. And they began to just sing, make a little, make a little song, a scripture verse, and they played, made a little melody. Just like the Bible says, making melody in your heart. And, and I remember the first time I saw uh, four hippies, four hippies, couple with guitar singing, hallelujah. You know, it was like so simple. And it was beautiful. People were making melody in their heart. But then some uh, smart aleck teacher <laughs> discovered the scripture verse that says, Oh, the Holy One of Israel, he's enthroned on the praises of God's people, which is beautiful. But we took that verse and made it something it was never meant to be. So there was a whole new theology built on this idea that, you know, God's throne is our praises. And, and, and you know, we have to, we have to, kind of build a throne for God's presence to dwell because he, he thrones on our praises. And so, so we, we, we came under this heavy burden. We have to now have this great praise so that God's presence could come and, and summon. I've been in those churches. They are pulling the presence down. We're pulling on it to come. You know, that can be very tiresome because what we have done is uh, well, we've done something tragic. There are actually two tragic consequences of this idea. Number one, we confuse God's presence with the feeling of God's presence. Let me say that again. We confuse God's actual presence with our emotions feeling His presence. And that gives the devil, the deceiver, an opportunity to play a trick that ultimately leads people away from God. Parents, think of your young people, the youth that you're raising. Don't let them think that God's presence is when, when your emotions are stirred because the dark day will come 
The dark experience will come when the emotions say, well, I don't feel God right now. And people will walk away from their Christian life because their Christian life is, is, is the, 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 the climax of this great feeling in a worship service. And I said, yes, God's presence is in our emotions, but God's presence is just as much in our reason, in your intellect, in your mind, in every part of you. God's presence isn't limited to when the emotional stimuli is there anymore than you're sitting at your desk or in your workplace and there's nothing in your emotions stirring you. Your intellect is working. Your mind is figuring out how to solve a problem. And, and do you think God's presence is less there than when all the lights are right and the music is tuned and the mixing is going good at the soundboard? No, no. The second tragic consequence that we have hijacked God's presence to an emotional experience is it's actually a pagan idea of God. You know, in the Roman Empire, they had something called Vestal Virgins. These were uh, women who had committed themselves to be virgins for a period of 30 years, and, and they were financed by the government. And they were to keep certain uh, prayer fires going, and they were for the purpose of protecting and bringing the presence of the gods on, on Rome, and there was an emperor called Gratian in, in 382. He removed the privileges of the Vestal Virgins. And you know what did that? It was the gospel. The gospel demolished this idea that, that we had to somehow have a throne built for God, and we had to kind of pull down the anointing. And, and, and one of the church for others, Irenaeus, writes about this. He talks about how they've been set free from this, that God's presence was free. It was by grace. It was in, in every part of their life. It wasn't just when they were doing worship or singing songs or attending a religious building or a temple that God's presence was there. I want to ask you, practice God's presence when you have no emotion. You don't feel anything. I, I, I do that. To be a Christian, I submit, just one of the ways to say it is, is to be united with Christ and His interest in the world in His presence 24-7. I say to be a Christian, I'm united with Christ. I'm never separated from Christ. And I'm united with His interest in the world. His presence is with me 24-7. Oh, encourage yourself with that. When you don't feel any emotions, encourage yourself in the Lord. He's with me now. Then encourage yourself by the Word. You know, John the Baptist, he's called the greatest, the greatest who ever lived under the old covenant order. He was a prophet before Jesus, and Jesus actually brags on John the Baptist. He says, you know, I mean, why did people go and hear him? And he said, nobody is greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, this great person, he was in prison where he would later die, and he was discouraged. Discouragement comes to great people. It says in Matthew 11, in prison, John heard about the works of Christ, and he sent word and said to him, are you the coming one or are we to look for someone else? So here's this great person. And he's saying, is Jesus the one? I'm having doubts. You know, John the Baptist had a long history with Jesus. 
their mothers. John's mother was Elizabeth. Mary, Jesus' mother, they had been pregnant at the same time. John the Baptist was born about six months before Jesus. And, and they kind of had known one another. Uh, John the Baptist had, had baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. He had a lot of powerful things. And now he's so discouraged. Am I saved? Does my life matter? And now he says, Jesus, help me. And I don't know what John the Baptist was looking for. Maybe he wanted a, Jesus to release an angel to come over there to the prison cell or send a prophecy. But here's Jesus' amazing answer in verse 4. Jesus answered. He said, report to John what you hear and see, that the blind receive sight and those who are lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed and those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is any person who doesn't take offense at me. What is Jesus doing? He is quoting the scripture. In fact, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. He, you know, Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm going to give a special word. I can see in the spirit the prison cell where John the Baptist is. And, you know, uh, it, it's a green color here. And, you know, he didn't give one of those kind of floozy prophecies that people give. No, he says, John... I want you to get into the scripture because Jesus knew that once John heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and, and to the poor the gospel is preached, John knew enough of the scripture that he would look into. I, I, he would look into Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 6, chapter 61, and he would say, yeah, that's what it says, that when the Messiah comes, that's going to happen. The dead are going to be raised and the blind will see. And then John would keep on reading Isaiah and he would say, well, it says right here in Isaiah chapter 40 that I'm the forerunner to just Jesus. So if, if that's happening, then Jesus is the Messiah and I'm his forerunner. What is Jesus doing? He's not giving any fancy kind of prophecy that some people would want today. He's saying, just get into the scripture. Encourage yourself, John, in the Scripture. See, practice this. Encourage yourself in the Word, which is Jesus Himself. He is the Word, but also in the written Word. Let, let, let me show you how I do this. I'm going to tell you, I just picked one of my favorite Scripture verses. I'm going to read it to you. And every time it says the word us or we, I'm going to add the word Peter Younger. This is how I encourage myself in the Scripture. Ephesians 1, uh, start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed Peter Youngren. I know it says us. You don't say Peter Youngren. I say, he has blessed Peter Youngren with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose Peter Youngren. Now again, put your name there. In him before the foundation of the world. That Peter Youngren, put your name there, should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined Peter Youngren, put your name there, to adoption as a son by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, by which he made Peter Youngren accepted in the beloved. That, that's what it means to encourage yourself in the word. You're not reading theories or, or philosophical ideas. You, you're reading about you. You are there. Oh, thank God. I feel good even just reading that. <laughs> Amen. So encourage yourself. That first point was, even if you don't have your Bible there, you, 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 just, you just talk to yourself. Come on. Come on, soul. You have God's presence with you. Then 
use the scripture. And then number three, encourage yourself in your spiritual family. Here comes something powerful. Paul, the mighty Paul, the great apostle Paul, who gave us half the New Testament, is writing this. When we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts on the outside, fears inside. He's saying this was a tough time. We're going through a tough time. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the discouraged, he said he, he, he was discouraged. It was like the, the courage was drained from him. He says, but God, who comforts the discouraged, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Ooh, there's so much in this. Hang on to this. First of all, the Apostle Paul acknowledges a battle. He says, we were pressed on every side. We didn't know which way to turn. We, we were facing conflict. We, we had no rest. People were bombarding us. There were fears inside and out. But he never confesses defeat. He doesn't say, so we, we're going to give up. And then he says, you know how God gave us courage? By Titus. We were encouraged by Titus. Catch this. Here's the mighty Paul who had been caught up in the third heaven. <laughs> he, he wrote half of the New Testament and he was discouraged. If discouragement could come to John the Baptist, if it could come to great King David, if it could come to Paul, and discouragement can come to everybody. And you know what encourages Paul? Titus. I was going to say little Titus, but you know, he's not so little. He's a great man. But I mean, the way we look at Paul, like, ooh, Paul, the great one. I mean, did Paul need to be encouraged? I mean, couldn't he kind of go over his track record? Couldn't he go over all the miracles and the healings he had seen as recorded in the book of Acts? Couldn't he go over all the things, you know, when he, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? No, 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 no. Paul, the mighty one, needed his spiritual family. He needed Titus. Titus encouraged him. And then he was encouraged by the fact we're not alone. He said, I heard Titus told me how all of you, what you're facing, what you're going through. Let me say something bluntly here. This staying at home and not coming together in an assembly on Sunday, it has brought us discouragement. If the mighty Paul needed the, the whole assembly. He, he needed Titus to, to encourage him. Don't you think we need to come together to be encouraged? I'm so glad when I come to the Toronto Celebration Church, when I'm not traveling somewhere in the world preaching, and, and, it, and I preach in, in the Toronto Celebration Church quite a lot, but sometimes and many times I hear our lead pastor, Nathan Thurber. I am encouraged. I'm so encouraged. Yeah, but you say, uh, Pastor Nathan, uh, 20 years ago, he went to World Impact Bible Institute. That's your Bible college, Peter. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I get so encouraged by Pastor Nathan. I get, and I tell you, some of you say, I, I think I need to make a move here. I, I've been kind of sitting at home too long. 
you know, I ventured out to the store once or twice. Come on. It's, it's time to come together. There's power in that. It's not just to fill the seats. We're not talking about that. We're talking about that even Paul was discouraged by the, when Titus came and he heard about that there's a spiritual family gathered together. He says, nevertheless, God. I love that expression. Nevertheless, God. It means whatever the doctor said, Whatever some people in your family may say about you, whatever your circumstances, whatever your emotional state might be, nevertheless, God is bigger. Oh, let me try to finish this up. I want to encourage the older people, encourage younger people. It talks about that in the scripture. And then number two, look at the track record of God's champions, every one of them the great patriarchs, the great prophets, the great apostles. You know, every one of them needed encouragement. And so let yourself be in a place where you can be encouraged. And then the third thing I will say, have a little discernment about the voices you listen to. You know, the Bible makes it clear that the voice of the devil is to accuse, to bring up your past, to remind you of your failures, to maybe belittle your background and, and try to tell you that you're not quite qualified. Uh, so that's a voice we say no to. But then there's the voice of people around you just buzzing around. You know, 10 spies in the story of Israel and the promised land, 10 spies by their negative voices kept millions of God's people in bondage for many years. They didn't break free because the words of those 10 spies were so embedded in their mind. Are there words that have been spoken around you? People talk about you maybe, you know. I always say, well, if you want to talk about me, that's good. I, I find that, that, I hope that's an interesting subject to you. Don't, don't get all uptight about it. People talk. People discuss. Let them talk. And so, so you have that, that voice of evil. You have the voice of people. Then you have your own voice. You know, because sometimes we don't need people around us to talk negative. We'll make up our own negative arguments. And you may have to cast those aside. Then there's God's voice. God's voice. And, and he, he, he comforts. He gives courage where the courage is gone. I, I just put four words. I hope they put them on the screen there for you to finish this off. I would say, first of all, rise. Rise up. If everybody in your neighborhood is going down, if everybody that you know is like obsessed with fear and discouragement and wonder, you rise up and say, greater is he that is in me that is in the world. Rebel. Rebel. That means I'm not putting up with this. I'm not going to bow to this. If everybody else is bowing before the golden image, I am not going to bow. If they throw me in a fire furnace, I will, I will stand. And then receive. Receive everything God has for you and then rejoice. You know, that, those are words from God. Rise. Rebel against negativity. Receive everything that God has for you, and then rejoice. Praise God. There's too much sorrow and complaining and whining 
in religion. No wonder people sometimes don't want to be a part of it. So much whining, so much sadness. It's like we think the more we are whining, the more spiritual we are. No, rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Well, I, I tell you, uh, I want to give you the opportunity. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can receive him right now. He loves you.